Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. On today's episode, we're digging into part two of leadership and the Leadership Academy that is sponsored by the Electricians Academy. If you don't know what that is, it is an academy online that teaches residential, commercial, industrial, grounding and bonding uh, in Electricity 101, all of those fundamentals, and helps decrease the learning curve. If you're an electrician already and you're moving from residential to commercial or from commercial to residential, or maybe you just want to reduce that that learning curve, you're only a couple years into the trade, but somebody says to you, well, you just got to put in your time, young man, or, or old man, like my case, then this helps reduce that learning curve because we cover so many topics that are pretty much really uh, impactful in understanding residential, commercial, industrial, grounding and bonding, which incidentally, grounding and bonding is one of our most popular courses. Um, all of those things. And of course, if you're new in the trade, the Electricity 101 is the fundamentals that you need. Now, all of that is available over on our website. That is www.electricalinstructor.com. That's electricalinstructor.com. And you can get all that information and join the academy and, uh, and we will grade your work, give you feedback. All of these studies will help you be a better electrician. And so it's, we're just excited about the academy. Okay. Let's get into this. We're at part two of this leadership program. And in the first uh, podcast we did, we really just kind of talked about organizational structure. And it talks about centralized and decentralized type of organizational structures and all about bureaucracy or how fluid decisions can be made. We also talked about the, the actual stages of growth that a business owner will go into from being a mom and pop or a one-man show. And they start having to make these decisions as their business grows. Now, again, none of that is always set in stone, but we do believe that you need to create a plan and start to focus on where you want to be, okay? So it's kind of like those things that you tell yourself, what would I do if I won the lottery? Um, And where would I spend the money? Same concept here. On paper, structure out where you want to be in a year, where you want to be in five years, where you want to be in 10 years. Really start to think about what you want to focus on. Again, it keeps you focused, whether you want to just do residential, you want to do commercial, maybe you want to do service work, Maybe you want to create a PV or photovoltaic division. I don't know. But you need to think about it. And it gives you a clear path and vision of where you want to go. Okay, so that's kind of for leaders and um, people that might be business owners or things to think about. Now it's assuming that you're going to now select your team. So you could be a foreman. You could be a lead man that has an influence in selection of, of your team. Or you could be an owner who's starting to set their team and needs to really understand what I have to put in place to successfully put together a good team of people. And there's some people that do a really good job of that, okay? And so there's usually a structure to that. And so we're going to talk about it today. And by the end of this module, and again, this is part two in the leadership series, we're going to be able to, you're going to be able to state the reasons why employees are regarded as assets to your company, You're going to understand the influence and participation of employees. You're going to understand the processes involved in the recruitment of an employee. And you're going to list the different types and forms of an interview. Okay, so all these things are going to be critically important. And we're going to touch and touch on each one of these so that you understand it. So this is a critical component. You're selecting your team. 
You're trying, if you're a company owner, you want to put together the best group of individuals you can to achieve your success. So the first thing we want to talk about is make sure that we understand the concept that our employees are assets to our company. A great deal of recent research has underscored the strategic advantage to be gained from managing employees as if they are assets rather than commodities. Okay? Assets. Uh, In other words, you know, don't think that your employees are just easily replaceable. Okay? They're a fundamental role in your company. And you know, as an owner, you need to target how you really focus a targeted approach to how you appreciate these assets that you have. No different than you appreciate, appreciate the assets of your vehicles, the tools in your company. These employees are assets to the companies. Okay? Now, again, hiring and firing takes place, but again, you want to give them this atmosphere of they are becoming part of a team and treat them as such. Okay? Commodities come and go. Assets retain and stay and they grow over time. Think about your employee as that, an asset that will grow over time to reap additional benefits. Now, I will tell you, if you bring an employee in as an asset, rather than a commodity, and you invest in that asset, that asset will return threefold onto you as your company grows because of their loyalty, their dedication, and all of those things are so vital to making your job as an owner a lot easier because these people pick up the mantle. They act as if they're owners because they have your best interest at heart, whereas a commodity, they always feel like they're just replaceable, and that is the wrong approach, I believe, in business success. Now, consider that commodities in business uh, employs things like paper, ballpoint pens, things that you can purchase. You actually use them up. And then what do you do? You discard them. That's a commodity. Investing in a commodity is never considered, okay? And again, we'll talk about refilling a ballpoint pen, for example. That would be an example. Okay, is an investment in commodity is never considered because it is simply uh, is not worth the expenditure of time and resources to worry about it. It's just a pin. You don't worry about refilling it. You we buy pins. I've, I buy pins at five thousand at a time with my names on them. Okay, and if it doesn't work, I throw it away. Okay, I don't want to put the time in and, and, and worry about it. I just buy them in bulk. Okay, now. A return on that investment is not expected. I'm buying it, I'm going to use it up, and I'm going to throw it away. Okay? Now, on the other hand, consider the assets employed in business, such as your physical facility, any equipment, and the money that you bring into the company are all assets. Okay? Now, things that are maintained and developed over time, make more money, invest in your facility, buy new equipment, buy new vehicles, all those are assets, okay? You maintain them, you develop them, you nurture them, and they reward you with reliability, okay? Now, making investments in business assets makes a great deal of sense, obviously, if you think about it how I've discussed it. Now, because these investments will bring a return on that investment, a growing number of companies recognizing that their employees are among their most valuable assets and are backed up that recognition with solid investments in your people providing the training. Again, I have a lot of people that the companies will put their electricians in our courses at Electrical Code Academy. 
They might have already been through an apprenticeship program. They might already have a training program, but they recognize that our programs are probably the most affordable ones out there with actual interaction with an instructor that actually gives them knowledge that they can put in practice. So that's the benefit of Electrical Code Academy to many, many businesses out there because it proves their education is being done in a way that can get results. And we provide the LMS, the grading and everything so that the owners can see the results of their employees as they move through our programs. Okay, So that's an investment in their asset as an employee. And it's a solid investment. Now, Let's talk about high commitment management system. Okay, let's talk about that for a second, and we'll use some example. Now, let's just say we have a professor, John Doe, of um, Stanford University, identified seven management practices that have been associated with producing sustained competitive advantage for the companies that have adopted them. Now, in reality, this actually was a study that was done by a professor, uh, uh, Jeffrey Pfeiffer, that was actually done, but I use John Doe because I didn't. I don't want to give no props to Stanford University, but anyway, anyway, Stanford University, um, the guy did a study, and this is what he found out, okay, the comp- that, that producing sustained competitive advantages for the company that have adopted them. Now, these practices are, number one, employment security. Two, selective hiring. Three, self-managed teams with decentralized authority. Now, if you don't know what decentralized means, go listen to part one where I go into detail of what it means. It means that self-management empowers people on a flat plane to be able to make decisions without so much bureaucracy in the, in the decision-making process. Okay, so self-management or empowering people to make decisions and be held accountable for them is a commitment to a certain type of management system. Uh, number four, high pay contingent on organizational performance, training, uh, reduced status differences, and sharing information. Now, put together, all together, these practices form a foundation of what is called high commitment or high-performance management system, okay, together, okay? Now, don't worry, I'll go into a little deeper thought here. Now, in a high-commitment management system, the evidence of the results of implementing a high-committed management system is striking and strong. Research has been conducted in many industries, from banking to the automotive to even the semiconductor, uh, even to the service industry. Okay, using this high commitment management system. Now, overall, the conclusions of these studies are remarkably similar. High commitment management systems produce higher organizational performance. Okay, now Professor Pfeiffer summarized the results basically into three categories. He says number one, he says people work harder because they are more they have more control over their work from a high commitment management uh, practice. Okay, they're held accountable. They're decision makers. Now, number two, he says people work smarter because they have stronger skills, a greater competence from an investment of high commitment management practices, and you're hiring the right people with the right knowledge, and you're giving them the tools to make those decisions. Okay, and number three, it says companies save administrative overhead and the costs of reducing um, the 
of alienation of their workforce and their adversely relationship with management. What does that mean? It means that they actually cohesively get along because they're expected to be provided with training. They have knowledge. They have a committed management staff. They decentralize the ability to have communication amongst their channels, and they are held to a higher standard of accountability. That is what's called a high-commitment management system. And the study that was done by Professor Pfeiffer uh, acknowledged that a lot of companies are going to what's called a high-commitment management system. Okay. Now, again, lest we not forget, the practices of a high-commitment system is employment security, making sure that they realize that their, their job is very secure, they, they are very much an asset and appreciated for whatever their function role is. Uh, it's selective hiring. means you don't just hire anybody. You hire the right people for the job, and you make sure they're qualified for the job. You give them the ability to be self-managed within a team or structure, and you decentralize their authority so that they can make decisions. Okay, um, And again, you give higher pay. Again, contingent on the organizational's performance. How they perform, they're rewarded for that performance, okay? Um, you don't just have a company that says, well, we don't, just don't give out raises. You know, they very much give out raises and pay compensation based on performance-based. You do good, you get bonuses, okay? It's motivating. Also, offering the training that's necessary to achieve it. You can't expect somebody to be successful if you don't give them the training and support to be successful, right? Uh, reduced Status differences, don't make it so known that the people at the top of the structure and the bottom of the structure can't communicate. Reduce the difference of this status structure so that people have what I call an open door policy for people to be able to, to talk about things. Um, and again, that's kind of, again, it's kind of like decentralized, um, but it is also more like what we call a flat organization. Again, go listen to part one if you don't understand what a flat organization is, but it allows communication uh, very cohesively. Uh, that is all part of a high commitment management system. And of course, sharing information. Make it very much open that people can share information across platforms uh, in your company, different divisions, different departments, so that we all can work on the same common goal. That's kind of a, a picture of a high commitment management system, which, which you might already employ. Okay, now, uh, so we got that, that structure all in place. We'll go on and now and move on to the next one, which is called employee participation and influence. That's where we're going to move to next. All right, now, introduction, employee participation and influence. Introduction, employees are the resources of an organization uh, in the same way as material assets, but they are also the firm's stakeholders. They have a vested interest in the success of the company. As the company succeeds, they succeed. And you need to make it known to these people, the employees, that mean so much to you as assets, that they are very much stakeholders in the company, that their success garners the company's success. And as the company succeeds, the company needs to be very gracious of their stakeholders that help them achieve that success. Never lose sight of that vision, okay? Now, the concept of employees as stakeholders refers to the interest employees have in the success of the company and the fact that actions taken by the organizations will directly affect the employee and, be honest with you, vice versa. Now, employees' stakes in the company are economic in the fact that their livelihood, their money, comes from the company. Okay. Now, psychological 
in that the derived pride from their work and political in terms of their rights as employees and citizens. So you have to remember that they have as a stakeholder um, psychologically, they feel better when the company grows uh, and they want to work harder. They take a lot of pride in their work and you want to foster that pride. You want to don't be afraid to reward an employee, whether it's an electrician, apprentice or whatever, for doing a good job. Everybody wants to hear they did a good job. Now, if they screw up, you got to deal with that as well. But there's a constructive right way and a wrong way to deal with that. Okay, Um, but again, we don't want it to be due to bad leadership. Okay, or not an open influence of being able to talk things out amongst supervisors down to journeymen, for example. It needs to be open lines of communication. Okay, now, the best way to incorporate employees' stake to improve an organization's performance is through employee participation and influence. So that's what we're kind of going to get in today, influence and all that type of stuff as well. All right, now, so let's talk first about employees' participation and influence. Now, there's two different things we talk about. One is called open book management. So what is that? Again, we're talking about employee uh, participation and influence in the company's processes. Now, open book management empowers employees with the information they need to see the reality of the organization's situation and to give relevant and helpful input. So open book management allows employees, maybe it's suggestion boxes, maybe it's at annual meetings. It, open book management empowers the employees with the information they need, okay? And they can give helpful input to how the company's management structure goes. Instead of being a situation where they don't listen to any of the employees' input, okay? But an open book management will literally encourage Uh, input on how the management process goes, policies, procedures, and things like that. Now, the next thing with that open theme of employee participation is what's called open door policies. And I'm sure you've heard this before. And some people say they have an open door policy when ultimately they really don't. Okay. But what is an open door policy? Now, it's very similar to open door management. Okay. Uh, But open door policies is where management makes it clear that employees can informally raise issues or give input at any time. And informally means they can just come in and, hey, knock on the door and say, hey, hey, boss, I need to talk to you about something. But the key thing here is as a company, as an owner, you need to make it clear that if you're going to promote an open door policy, that you do not promote a retaliatory policy. People need to have the ability to come in and talk about issues openly and you need to have people in management positions that will receive this information and, again, cannot hold bias, cannot have a grudge, cannot hold what they say in, uh, in some other regard other than hearing and addressing and offer advice for this situation. Now, it might be something where you end up as a management, say you need to see HR. You might need to see somebody else, maybe in-house counseling or something. But you need, that's what an open door policy is. It allows that interaction between the employees to, to have participation in the company. And again, promoting open door policies, promoting open book management uh, is things that the employees feel like they have some say. There are stakeholders in the company 
and they have some type of influence in it. They don't feel like they're just a bean counter, uh, not a bean counter. They're just a number, okay? And they're replaceable. They're an asset. So show that they're an asset, okay? Now, there's also other things that I kind of talked about a minute ago uh, with Suggestion Box is what's called feedback programs. Uh, very popular in companies, whether they're small or large, is to have a, what's called a feedback program. Now, sometimes uh, implemented in the form of employee surveys or through direct employee management interaction um, uh, can be less uh, expensive way to get feedback from employees concerning specific programs or policies. Okay, so you could have a survey, a form, a Dropbox, anonymous, but they're giving feedback. And again, management needs to address the feedback and be able to uh, understand it. And that is so important to feel for the employee to feel like they have some say in the program. Now, surveys are particularly economical, especially when done online using free survey, pro- survey programs like something like a Survey Monkey or something like that. Um, or if you have some kind of internal system that they can submit things, or maybe they have an email address that's just anonymous or or, or something, uh, a, a how they can submit this to you as a feedback. Um, and it's really important because you really want to know what your customers are thinking, okay, and what your employees are thinking. shouldn't say customers, but again, if you're the owner, your employees are technically are your customers as well, but they're stakeholders. So I want to know what they think, what their grievances are, what their feelings are. Do they not feel like they're a part of the team? What, what can we do? Because if it's one person feeling this way, Chances are there's more than one that might feel that way. Now, let's move on to what I call team mechanisms. Now, team mechanisms such as quality circles, work teams, group meetings, uh, or total quality management teams provide employees with the ability to synchronize their individual input into a better solution to organizational problems. So a lot of times you'll have what's called a working group or a think tank or tank tank, excuse me, um, or where they can get together and solve organizational problems. Maybe, again, maybe we have a problem with, let's say we have some problem with the shipping department. I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe something's just dropping the ball. So we put together people in that department, and we have a big think tank, and we try to solve the problems. Not spend so much time dreading on the what the issue is, but more how we can fix the issue. And you'd be surprised that with that kind of input, it's kind of like a, like a think tank that you can come up with solutions to better the company. And at the end of the day, the employees feel like they're involved in the structure of the company. Okay, It's so much easier to solve a problem by allowing others to comment and be a part of the solution. Okay, so as an owner, sometimes you're just uh, you're a one man show. But as you grow, you have other people that can give insight into something who are maybe more intimate with the problem than you are. You're so removed from it because of your tasks and what you do that maybe you want their insight in order to fix a problem. And you'd be surprised the valuable information and the employees feel like they're very much committed to the actual resolving the problem. And that's a beautiful thing because the more you can get the employees involved, whether you're an electro contractor and you've got helpers, uh, you want to you listen to what they have to say. You want to have them to freely to be able to communicate this. Okay? Now, there's a difference between uh, what I call bitching 
and being constructive. Okay, there is a difference. And you might have listened to my podcast where I talk about uh, removing the cancer from a company. Uh, There are some people that are just a cancer to the company, and you just have to remove that. But there's other people that legitimately have things that are happening that are problems in the company. And before they can fester, then they want to have the freedom and the ability to be able to bring that up without having any retaliation. And again, you need a structure in place to be able to do that. And sometimes it takes people with very thick skin to be able to simply be the receiver of that information and then fundamentally be able to work and do something with that information, okay, to try to resolve the problem, all right? Now, let's talk a little bit about recruiting employees. Now, an introduction a little bit here. Uh, There are two principal ways to recruit workers, uh, internally and externally. Obviously, you can hire from within or you can hire from without. Not without. You can hire outside or internally, so internally or externally. Now, most companies will actively use both methods. They're always looking for people inside as well as people outside the company, ensuring opportunities for your existing employees to move up that organizational chart, Uh, while at the same time, you're also looking for new talent to come into the company, okay? Somebody that might be a specific fit for a need. Now, depending on the time frame, and specific specialization of a of your field of study. Maybe you're looking for somebody that's a PV expert or whatever you're looking for, uh, and you've got a specific time that you need to fill this position, some methods will be more effective than others. And in each case, the establishment of a comprehensive job description for every position for which the company recruits will help to narrow down that scope of the search and offer more qualified candidates, okay? Again, you're either throwing at the dartboard or you're throwing at the bullseye, okay? If you know what you're looking for, make sure you describe it directly. Don't just be so broad that you get a 1,000 candidates and then you have to weed like a needle in a haystack. Be very specific on what you need, okay? That's a key to uh, running a good job ad and making sure that you're really being very descriptive of what you're looking for, Okay? We want it to be efficient. Now, let's talk about the internal recruitment. Now, internal recruitment is often the most cost-effective, obviously, because, again, you can do it internal, and you might even know a potential employee that needs to move up into another position. So that's internal. Um, Now, as it usually, uh, existing companies' resources and talent pool will will fill needs and, therefore, may not incur any extra costs because it's already in the company. You have somebody, you're like, hey, Johnny would be a good fit. But then, of course, Johnny's role becomes vacant, and you might need to fill that position unless you absorb that position. But you might do it internally. And again, this is done in two ways. Um, When we're talking about saving costs, advertising for job openings internally uh, or using your own network, all of those things can be very cost-effective. You don't have to spend a lot outside to do that, okay? Now, advertising job roles uh, internally. Let's talk about that a little bit because if you're going to hire within, you've got a couple guys. Say you've got some electricians and you're looking for one of them to be now a lead guy or your right-hand guy or gal or whatnot. So how do you advertise job roles internally? Now, again, it's is less intricate when you're just a five, six, seven-man shop or versus somebody that's got literally hundreds and hundreds of employees, okay? Now, this is an act of using existing employees as a talent pool for open positions. Now, 
It carries the advantage of allocating individuals that are qualified and familiar with the company's practice, culture, our structure, our vision, while at the same time, you're empowering employees within the organization and you're giving them opportunity to move up. Now, it also shows the company's commitment to and trust in the current employees taking on this new task. Remember, these are your assets. They're not your commodities anymore. They are assets. So that's going to play a strong role in how they're going to fit the image of the company and how they're going to promote the company. I am certainly not going to promote somebody that simply spends all their time bashing our company than is a person that's really committed to our company and understands the vision and is willing to move forward and puts in the work. And again, I might have somebody that's extremely talented that does nothing but bash the company publicly versus somebody that doesn't do anything, that maybe not as as skilled, but is still skilled, but really understands the vision and promotes the company and is thankful for being an asset to the company, then they're probably going to get more, uh, you know, more looking at than the other person, okay? Again, they're moving up the chain, more responsibility, more exposure, uh, and again, they have to be a good fit for the company, okay? All right, so there you go. Now, using your networking. Now, this method can be used in a variety of different ways. Now, first, this um, recruitment technique simply posts the question to existing employees on whether anybody is aware of a qualified candidate that they may know personally, which could be uh, fill this position. So you're literally asking your own employees who they know. And you'd be surprised somebody saying, hey, you know, Johnny really works good. I think Johnny would be a great for this position. Okay, that gives us a starting point with that, okay? And again, who knows better than the people that all work together? Now, uh, known as employee referrals is what we call that. Now, this method often gives bonuses to the existing employee if the recommended applicant is hired. So again, there's an incentive for them. If they recommend Johnny and Johnny is the perfect fit for that job, then maybe the employee that referred him gets a $50 bonus or a $100 bonus or whatever they get because they saw something in this individual and they they really worked with the assets in this company to put this person in the position. So again, everybody should be rewarded for that. Now, another method uses industry contacts and memberships in professional organizations to help find a talent pool, okay? And basically, this is simply through word of mouth information regarding the needs of the organization. Maybe you send it out through an organization that you're a member of and that you put out that, hey, uh, maybe it's an engineering organization or or whatnot. Maybe it's through, let's say, uh, IBEW if you're an apprentice, uh, if you're in the... um, a union or IEC or whatever the association might be, you'll put it out there, hey, we're looking for somebody, okay? But you're putting it through the organization that is only available to members, and, of course, your staff is in that uh, membership, okay? And so, again, you might see somebody might see that internal and say, hey, I'm the guy. I can do that. that that's a good role for me. Or it might present outside sources that see this, okay? Now, With that fault of outside sources, we're going to shift to what's called external recruitment. Now, external recruitment focuses on resources on looking outside of the organization for potential candidates and expanding the available talent pool to your company. Now, the primary goal of external recruitment is to create diversity among the potential candidates 
by attempting to reach a wider range of individuals unavailable through your internal recruitment. So reaching out for people outside of your internal uh, scope of, of individuals, maybe you're looking for something with a specialty that you really don't do, or you're branching out into a different division, or you're adding somebody with added skills. Maybe you're not used to doing service work, and now you want to branch into service work, and you want a service manager who has experience in doing this that can lead a staff of electricians who are not familiar with service work. So maybe you go outside of, the, of your companies, and you're looking for somebody that has that experience, has that training, okay? So what do we do when we're going external recruitment? We're going to use traditional advertising, maybe in the paper, maybe in magazines. We're going to go to job fairs, uh, campus visits. Uh, We might even hire headhunters and recruitment services to look for specific people. They will go and seek out people who put their resumes on things like LinkedIn or Monster on things like that, Indeed or whatnot, and they get a finder's fee. Uh, But they're going to bring you a pool of candidates. And of course, you have online recruitment. You could also put it on your, you know, the job opening on things like monster.com or again, you could do that yourself up on uh, Indeed or whatnot. And you're going to have the HR department are going to funnel in these different applications. Uh, and hopefully, again, you're very descriptive on the job title. Don't be vague. Be very descriptive on it so that your candidate pool has a higher percentage of meeting the qualifications that you're looking for. Now, let's talk about each one of these. Uh, because each one of them bear a little bit of discussion. For example, traditional advertising. This incorporates many, um, one or many forms of advertising, ranging from newspaper, classified, radio advertisement. It is established that companies spend approximately $2.8 billion annually on these types of ads recruiting. Now, before the emergence happened here, before the emergence of any internet, This was the most popular form of recruitment for organizations. But the decline in readership of newspapers and everything going digital and whatnot has made it less effective. Everybody's pretty much going digital online these days, okay? But again, it's still a way to do it. You could still put it in publications, newspapers, looking for things, employment. There's still help wanted ads. So again, still gets done. Uh, The next one was job fairs and campus visits. Now, job fairs are designed to bring together a comprehensive set of employees in one location so that they may uh, gather and meet with potential employees. So you might have a booth at a fair. You might have five or six influential decision makers in your company attend the booth, and then potential employees come to the booth, and they're basically doing little mini interviews, if you will. Okay. Now, the cost of conducting a job fair are distributed across the various participants and can offer an extremely diverse set of applicants. In other words, if you go to the fair, you're probably only paying for your booth, uh, but you might get 100, 50, uh, 200, 250 different employers there with a booth that people that are prospective employees can come there and they can move to different interests that they might be interested in. And again, you have to have really talented people working your booth in your company, in human resources, that can weed out the applicants for a specific need. So I always tell people when it comes to job fairs, go with the distinct description of the job you're looking for, the person you're looking for, and ask the right questions, okay? That's going to be critical for you being able to weed out the individuals because you're going to get inundated with applicants at these job fairs, okay? And you want to weed it down. 
Now, depending on the proximity to a college or university or a camp, you know, campus visits might be a great way to do it. So a lot of the colleges will have employer day. Well, employees will come there. Employers will come there and set up their booth and interact with college students that are going to be graduating soon or in the next in the last year of their of their degree program. And they might be targeting individuals for specific qualifications. Okay, so. A campus visit helps to find candidates that are looking for opportunities to provide themselves and have the minimum qualifications handy once they graduate. Now, such as college education, if the firm seeks that all of their employees have to be a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or whatnot, um, more often than not, I don't think that's irrelevant today, but um, because, again, you could have a skill set that's not necessarily needs a college education. But if you're going to go to the to a university or college, and obviously that's you're searching for a prerequisite that they have to have a certain type of degree for a certain type of function. Maybe it's the accounting or something, uh, a payroll or something like that in your company. All right. Now, as far as electricians, there's plenty of job fairs that are just job fairs that aren't going to be you know university based. It's just job fairs, and a company's going to be there to recruit uh, potential electricians, journeymen's. Uh, helpers, apprenticeship program people, and, and it's very popular. And the cost of that is low considering that you're just going to pay for your booth fee. Uh, the next one is the headhunter and recruitment services. Now, these outside services are designed uh, to essentially compile a talent pool for the company. However, they can be extremely expensive because they're hunting for people. They're getting paid. Okay. Now, all of this service can be extremely efficient, and providing qualified applicants because they're supposed to weed these down. Um, again, demanding job positions, uh, the rates for the service uh, provided by headhunters can range anywhere from 20 to 35% of the new recruits' annual salary if they're actually hired. So it, if you're hired and you get paid, you're paying somebody $100,000 a year, you know, they could say that their fee for hiring this is twenty five grand to get you this employee. That's expensive. But if you're a big company and you're looking for the best candidate, VPs, people in operations, heads, and things like this, then it might be worth it to really have somebody narrowed down because your organizational structure doesn't allow you to do that. But this is an option for you. Uh, and then, of course, the last one we're talking about is online recruitment. Now, the use of the Internet to recruit the talent pool quickly becomes the preferred way to doing this due to the ability for such a wide range of applicants it's a quick and very cheap. Um, many uh, there are many ways to turn the internet into a recruitment tool for your company. Again, Indeed, Monster, um, Job Builders, CareerBuilder.com. There's just tons of ways to do that. So that ends up being what a, a majority of people will do is they will go with the process of uh, going to the internet and going to those job forums. That's what they'll typically do. All right, so let's kind of move on. Next, let's talk about interviews. Now, we're going to do a little introduction to interviews because there's, there's, there's right ways and wrong ways. There's two common types of interviews, and we'll discuss that. But the best interviews follow a structured framework in which each applicant is asked the same questions and scored with the consistent rating process. Okay? You don't want to be all over the place. You want to develop common questions that you ask all applicants and you rate it the exact same way, being very impartial in how you apply this framework structure. Now, having a common set of information 
about the applicants upon which to compare after all the interviews have been conducted allows hiring managers to avoid prejudice and all interviewers to ensure a fair chance, equitable opportunity to get the job, regardless of the race, color, creed, religion. Keep it simple. Keep it straight. Avoid the pitfalls. Follow a procedure. And it should be something that you can do from applicant to applicant to applicant and give the hiring manager something that they can work with. Now, many companies choose to use several rounds of screening with different interviewers to discover additional facets of the applicant's aptitude or skill, as well as develop a more well-rounded opinion of the applicant from a diverse perspective. Okay, so that when you have multiple rounds, and a lot of big companies will have multiple rounds of hiring, and you might as well. For example, I know some electrical contractors that start with an interview over a cup of coffee, and then they'll go to a next interview where they'll ask specific questions. Uh, and then again, you know, then maybe they'll even have another one depending on what position they're hiring for. Uh, the questions are different each time, and they're really looking for responses to see whether or not this is a good fit for their company. Because again, we're thinking of them as assets. We're not thinking about short-term. We're thinking long-term, and I want to see if they're the right fit for the company, okay? So that's how we do it, and that's how we keep it uniform. Now, there's two common types of interviews. There's called a behavioral, and there's called situational, okay? And they are explained here as we go through this. I'm going to kind of touch at each one of them. Now, let's talk about what's called a behavioral interview. Now, in a behavioral interview, the interviewer asks the applicant to reflect on his or her past experiences. After deciding what skills are needed for the position, the interviewer will ask a question to find out if the candidate possesses these skills. Now, the purpose of behavioral interviewing is to find links between the job's requirement and how the applicant's experience and past behaviors will match those requirements, okay? For example, let me talk about some behavior interviewing questions and give you kind of a context to this. Describe a time when you were faced with a stressful situation. How did you handle this situation? Now, this is a very common question on an exam because, one, I want to know what you think a stressful situation is, and it allows me to gauge your level of stress on what you think something is stressful or not, whereas I might say, what? That is not stressful. But I need to gauge what you think uh, was stressful, and when you identify that, I want to know how you handle the situation. Next, I might say, give me an example of when you showed initiative and assumed a leadership role. Okay, so maybe your company was doing something you previously worked for, and everybody couldn't make a decision, and you had to make a decision because of a timeline, and you made it, you stepped up to the challenge, and you made that decision. Okay, tell me about it. Give me an example. Why did you do it? What are the what, what, what happened in that process? As an interviewer, you have to be more of a listener. And, of course, that's very tough for me because you know how I run my mouth constantly. But you have to be, an interviewer has to be a good listener. And you have to listen to how the message is being delivered by the actual applicant. Okay, But anyway, that's called behavioral interviews where we're asking you how to describe a situation and how you reacted to a situation. Okay, Now, a situational interview, which is a different style, is this. It requires the applicant to explain how he or she would handle a series of hypothetical 
situations. Again, very common on a lot of interviews because we're trying to see if you have the aptitude for a position. So we're going to ask you how you would react to these hypothetical situations. Now, situational-based questions evaluate the applicant's what? Judgment, ability, and knowledge of the subject matter. Now, before the administering this type of interview, it's a good idea for the hiring manager to cons- the hiring manager to consider possible responses and develop a scoring key for evaluating purposes. In other words, when you develop these questions, think about possible answers. So really, when you're the person creating these questions, you don't just write a question and say, ooh, I'm just going to see what they say. You need to have an expectation of what the answers might be, okay? It is so good that a hiring manager will sit down and say, okay, here's the hypothetical question, and here's how our company would like to address it. So sometimes these answers will be looked at by a a management system that will say, okay, this is consistent with how we handle issues. So ask the question, and now we have an answer that is very consistent on how we as a company would handle, and that way the hiring manager can compare this person's answers to what our company process and procedures are, and we can see if it aligns with our um, our common goals. Okay, so let me give you some examples uh, of situational interview questions. Now, question that might be asked is: You and a colleague are working on a project together, however. Your colleague fails to do his agreed portion of the work. What would you do? Okay, now you need to have an answer to that because you know that they're going to come up with an answer. One answer might be, you know what, I work as a team. I took took it for the team and I finished uh, his work. Uh, an answer might be, I resented my coworker. I went to my supervisor to complain. Uh, there could be possible answers. He could say, you know, I took uh, my um, uh, partner to the side. We had a a conversation about how we are a team. We want to do this together. And after a conversation, um, the project, uh, the co-project person said, you're right. We ended up working together and we completed the task. All these things are vital responses that we as a hiring manager are looking for. And they need to align with the company's principal procedures and policies. And again, you're just trying to, um, understand what the applicant's saying so that you can see if they're a good hire because they align with your, uh, maybe your ethics, maybe your, your, again, your procedures, your processes, and all those type of things to see if they're a good fit to be an asset to your company. Another question you might ask is a client approaches you and claims that she has not received a payment that supposedly had been sent five days ago from your office. She is very angry at you. What would you do? Okay, do you have empathy? Do you get, um, I guess, do you get uh, bent out of shape? Do you get angry? How do you address this situation? How do you put them at ease because they have a legitimate concern? Um, how do you address it? Do you say, I'm going to go to the uh, accounting office and I'm going I'm to personally see how we find this? Um, and that's what I did. Or maybe you're going to take the, 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 you know, the client's information and say, I promise you I will get back to you within 24 hours. I will do the work and find out what's going on. How do you ease their anger? How do you address that? Okay. Another thing to think about internally is that do you have a structure in your company? When, when you ask this question, because you're writing this question for the applicant, 
You need to know how do you address these issues in your company? Do you have a procedure in how you address this, whether you take it to a manager, accounting manager, or who's the people in the structure? Have you developed a structure of contact people who, when this comes up, that you can literally get the answers you need for this uh, customer or this client? Um, Think about those things because you need that fluidity in the company. So if you're going to write a question like this, you need to know how you would respond as a company. But this is a good question to see what the person would do if they were confronted with this situation. And be surprised, as you might see, that their answer is something that y'all didn't think about. And you're like, you know what? That was a daggone good answer. And maybe it might impact how you do your company. And you know what? If you end up hiring this person, make them aware of that. Say, you know what, your answer to the interview really made us think about a procedure that we have to really benefit our clients because we're a very customer service a service type of centric company and you did a great job. Thank you. We're glad to have you on board. All these things can go a long way in creating an asset from that employee. Okay? But that's just come examples of situational interviews that you might run into. Okay. So now let's kind of just do a, a little bit of a summary in the process so that we kind of have a takeaway from this uh, selecting your team aspect. Um, You really understand by now why employees are regarded as assets. They definitely going to keep your company in a good light, move forward. Everybody feels invested in the company. They're all stakeholders. Um, You identify the seven management practices that produce sustained competitive advantage. Okay. And we went over each, each one of those and really, uh, found that that was fundamental in making sure that we provided training, that we provided a, a clear decentralization for the free flowing of information from the company. You rewarded your employee. All those essential uh, management policies. Um, we explain the concept of employees as stakeholders. It's so important to have your employee on your side very much uh, in the winning corner of your company. And you can do a lot to keep that. And you can do an awful lot also to destroy that, and you create a cancer within your company, and that's never a good thing. So while you might need to remove the cancer, you need to look at the cause, and it might be how you structured your company, and you don't have open book management, or you don't have an open book policy to allow free flowing of information to enhance that stakeholder participation and the positive growth of your company. Uh, We talked about the listing organizational policies, programs, and mechanisms. And, of course, we listed and explained the principal ways to recruit workers, whether it's advertising, online. And then, of course, we talked about the interviewing process and all those things which are critical to success uh, in the business. So, again, all of those were great things in this program. Um, And so that was the end of part two. Uh, And, again, the the next module that we're going to go into is going to be managing your team. That is dealing with staff training and appraisal of your employees as far as the leadership program. But again, I want to thank you for joining me for this episode, and hopefully you got something out of it. Till next time, stay safe. God bless.